Today I'm speaking with Tara Brock. Tara is a very celebrated mindfulness teacher. She's also a clinical psychologist. And I've been wanting to get her here for quite some time. There have been many requests for a conversation with Tara. Unfortunately, we had a recording mishap here, and only the recording of our Skype signal got captured. The local recording failed. This occasionally happens, and the choice is between using the conversation as is, or throwing it out and attempting to re-record it with some semblance of the original spontaneity. I've elected to do the former here. So your ear will have to adjust to Tara's track in this recording, and I think it will in most cases. If you don't like how it sounds with headphones, I recommend trying it without. Also, you'll hear we get into a political discussion at the end, which I was tempted to cut but then decided to leave it in because I think it will be of interest to some of you, and it may be interesting for just how that discussion happened. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. Tara is the author of several books, including Radical Acceptance and, most recently, Radical Compassion. And now I bring you Tara Brock. I am here with Tara Brock. Tara, thanks for joining me. Totally. My pleasure, Sam. So I I know we have many friends and and teachers and, and contacts in common. I guess to start here, tell me how you came to become interested in and practice and eventually teach meditation. Well, I started in an ashram, actually. Before that, I was very involved with political activism, very left activism, and I got kind of tired and just discouraged by the degree of kind of violence and the energy of it. And so I was I was actually on my way to Cornell Law School when I took a hard turn and decided to join an ashram instead and practiced in an ashram for about 10 years, yoga and meditation. Mm-hmm. And then which ashram? Who was the teacher? It was 3HO, Yogi Bhajan, mm. and the Sikhs. Oh, yeah. And then left the ashram. It was very rigid and anti-feminist and hierarchical and all of that. Mm. So so I, I ended, landed up at a Buddhist retreat soon after. And it was really... <laughs> it was. I, I love this... Uh, I love this story because it was really like the second or third day at a Vipassana retreat that I, something in me said, well, this this practice can kind of carry me about as far as I can imagine. So I decided, and I was already teaching yoga, and I just came back from that retreat and said, well, you know, now we're doing Buddhist meditation. So it was a little bit of hubris because I uh, just, you know, just literally shifted gears in that way, and then... Uh, Joseph and Jack kind of took me under wing and, and trained me in. Mm. And, and was it, you, your first Vipassana retreats were with Joseph and Jack and uh, yeah, the, rest with of the Joseph IMS crew? Up at, up at IMS, yeah. Uh-huh. Nice. And so have you sat three month retreats there and, and spent a lot of time at IMS? I've been to a number of the six week retreats. I have a son, and so it never quite worked out to do the whole three months. Yeah, no, I understand that. Uh, I don't think I have sat a retreat since 
our first daughter appeared in the world. So I know, I know, I know <laughs> the tension there. Life. How, yeah. And how old is your daughter? She is just about to turn 12. Oh, so you're still in the thick, Sam. <laughs> yeah. I, and we also have a, a six-year-old, soon to be seven. So uh, and you're totally in it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you started with Vipassana uh, as, as many people listening to us will be familiar with it. And then so did you move on to incorporate any other styles of, of meditation practice beyond that? I did. I got very drawn to Dzogchen and the Tibetan teachings, but primarily Dzogchen. So that was, so that I wove that in. And whatever I'm doing over the years is some sort of a, a mix of that and, you know, Vipassana and non-dual practices. And so, and what year did you encounter Dzogchen and who, who were your teachers there? Primarily Sokhne Rinpoche. Mm. You know, there, I've, I've read and woken up through a lot of different teachers. I have, I still have, I am that by Srinur mm-hmm. Sargadatta that is literally, I just read it over and over and over again. Not, yeah. not, the, not as, not sequentially, I just pluck things. It's just ever useful. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic book. He was a fantastic personality, really amazing. Did you, did you study with him? I didn't. I, um, but I, I lived with that book for a long time, and I, I studied briefly with, I guess he was his translator and you know quasi protege, uh, Ramesh Balsakar. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't spend much time with him, and I also, you know, studied with uh, Punjaji. So the, the whole Advaita thing is something I'm very familiar with. But Nisargadatta was such a cantankerous and colorful person <laughs> that it's just it's just amazing to read those dialogues and, and see video of him. It's, just, it's it's hilarious. I'm amazed by how flexible he is. You yeah. know, he, he just has countless metaphors and approaches to the same thing over yeah, and over. Yeah, really brilliant. I mean, it just he was just a, a metaphor factory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and Punja too. I mean, I. I as in the same way, I, and I, right now I'm forgetting the three words that made up his book, but, you know, because they all have these three words, as it is, or I am that. Or, right. But um, Punjo also is just, you know, got right to me. He would often say, give up the search. Uh, I guess that's four words. <laughs> it still counts. Yeah. I've spoken a lot on the Waking Up app about the difference, as I see it, between dualistic and non-dualistic mindfulness and you know i have my own sort of special emphasis on the significance of the transition there and because it, I mean, it was it was very significant for me this is something i've joked and uh, jostled and debated and griped with joseph about i mean joseph and i have done i think three or four podcasts at this point and i, mean, I don't know how clo- how, I don't know how well you know joseph but he doesn't have um the experience of making this transition in quite the same way. I mean, he has a very interesting and, frankly, very lucky introduction to the practice of, of mindfulness. So he's, it's not so vivid for him the, the psychological pain of seeking that can get tuned up by a dualistic practice of mindfulness and corrected for by a shift to a non-dual one, which is something that's still very vivid for me. Where do you fall on this continuum of it mattering or not mattering, that transition in, in your own practice? 
first time as I'm listening to Sam, I'm, I would love to then listen to those those conversations and to your perspective on an experience. It was a huge deal for me. The first retreat I did with Sokni, for me, it really was a shift from foreground to sensing the beingness, just beingness, you know, and and then just noticing how everything could arise in that and that the mind would narrow and fixate on objects. And there was nothing wrong with that. But in the noticing of that, there could be a falling back into freedom, into beingness. So that was a really, really big deal. And the other big deal was really getting that any controlling consolidates a sense of selfness and that it's really in the surrendering, the utter non-controlling, utter letting be, letting life be as it is, that there's a re-inhabiting of that being quality. So so effort, the whole question of what is effort becomes really, really interesting, that, that it's skillful and intelligent to on purpose make an effort and that the, the true skill in it comes from it uh, becoming less and less of a any tension in the system until there's truly non-doing. So those two elements are uh, really big deal, the foreground to background and the non-doing. And I'm curious how that resonates for you and how that lands, you know, in terms of your understanding. The difference there for me is everything. It's not that there are obviously paradoxes here that need to be acknowledged. And there's just the sheer fact that it takes people however long it takes to become sensitive to the distinctions we're going to be making here. And that can be frustrating. And, you know, the paradox is there's really no good reason for it to take long at all, but it does. And you you need a a requisite degree of mindfulness and concentration to even follow what we're saying here uh, or will be saying. And there's also the paradox that you can get a lot of benefit from dualistic mindfulness. It's not to say Mm -hmm. that it's um, not valuable to be practicing and noticing thoughts and intentions and emotions arise from the the apparent point of view of being a the subject in the head who can aim attention at these objects in consciousness and and feel some relief even in making that distinction between the thing and the and the thing that's knowing it you you can kind of break the spell of identification with many of your thoughts and reactions, even dualistically, and that does provide some relief. But in my practice, I became very caught by the dualistic striving logic of it. I, mean, I spent some time with Upandita on retreat, you mm-hmm. know, like you know, mm-hmm. two months once, and then mm-hmm. one month, a couple of times after that, and really, really just went hook, line, and sinker into the, the sort of progress of insight model of seeking on some basic level to get elsewhere through the practice of meditation. I mean, the, 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 you know, whether it's spelled out this way or not, the message you get, certainly in the Burmese line of things, is that really there, there's nothing to notice in this moment beyond the pervasive evidence of your, your unenlightenment. And what you, your, your job is to pay such careful and equanimous attention to that mess that you break through to something else, to something that's really not here right now, right? You know, like the mind of the Buddha isn't here right now. Right. If you're going to follow the logic of 
the Vasudhi Maga as filtered down through Mahasi Sayadaw and, and his line. And the Vipassana community, you know, mostly Joseph and Sharon, who I studied with more than Jack, but, you know, Jack was also a teacher, were really, they were, everyone was captivated by that logic, and it wasn't until a few of us actually went and saw Punjaji and then became interested in Dzogchen and uh, we all went to see Tuk Oregon that that began to shift. So for some years there, probably the, the first year I spent on retreat in you know various chunks, it was very dualistic, very striving, very just agitated by the whole project of getting somewhere contemplatively. And mm-hmm. so when I when I met Punjaji first, but really you know finally when I met Tuk Oregon, you know that that, that bubble popped and. You know, the relief I felt there was, you know, mm-hmm. it's something that's never gone away, really, because I mean, what's happened, and, and this is you know, probably, I'd be interested to know if, if you describe it this way, but so for me in my Vipassana practice before I encountered Dzogchen, it's not that the experience of non-duality was totally foreign to me. It wasn't. I would, I would have moments, especially on retreat in periods of lots of continuity of mindfulness, where the apparent distance between subject and object would collapse and there would just be, you know, in a moment of hearing, just the hearing, you know, there'd be no mm-hmm. hearer and thing mm-hmm. heard. And so it would be with seeing or, you know, in any other sense channel. And there'd be this brief moment of just unity. And then, you know, my thinking would come online and I, and I would think, oh, that, that was it. That was, that was interesting. But there'd be, there was no sense of how to get back there apart from mm-hmm. just being more continuous with the mindfulness and, and developing more concentration. And the, the sense of selflessness that I was you know, experiencing and, and being taught to experience through those teachings really seemed predicated mostly on the experience of impermanence, right? It's, just, it's like anatta that's born of anicca, the fact that there's, everything is just arising and passing away it's pretty obvious there can be no self in the middle of all this because there's just there's nothing to which you could attach that notion but it still was a kind of derivative selflessness mm-hmm. it was it was, it was mm-hmm. selflessness born of the flux of phenomena so it was, it was kind of an extrapolation whereas with Dzogchen, there was just a direct introduction to anatta under some you know construal of it just you know non-duality is synonymous with the the sense of the center, the sense of the subject falling away. And mm-hmm. and then the practice thereafter is you can simply be mindful of that, right? Your mindfulness doesn't have to be aimed at anything. And it certainly doesn't have to take stock of impermanence strategically so as to disabuse you of this notion of self. And there's also nothing haphazard about it anymore. I mean, you can find this insight again as clearly as you can find your breath, right? So that's... That's the crucial piece for me. It's like the, the practice can't start until you can be mindful of selflessness or non-duality directly. And to be able to be mindful of that really does unwind the logic of seeking to get anywhere based on continuous mindfulness. So it really does, it undercuts the whole you know, emotional mm-hmm. urgency mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of linking moments together because, you know, rather than being, you know, having to, to contemplate the evidence of your unenlightenment, you, you really, you're sort of on the other side of of this thing and you, 
you actually can't find the evidence of your unenlightenment in every moment of mindfulness. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's, yeah, so I, Joseph and I, be, I'll be interested to hear uh, what you think of those conversations. I'll point you to them after we get off line here. But that whole kind of spiritual biography is is not at all the one, Joseph kind of had the inverse of that. So it's, you know, we're sort of talking from very different places in terms of just what being on a, on a path of whatever description has, has done to us psychologically. So a, a lot of what you're saying resonates very much from my interior experience. And one of the things that I find is that many ways teachings are offered, there is a, a kind of undercurrent or bias that something's wrong with life and that we need to we need to you know get out of our delusion and be different that there's this you know basic you know presupposition that um we've made a mistake and that life's a mistake in a way the way it's being done and and i think our nervous system that something's wrong feeling in our nervous system creates the kind of angst that i think underlies trying to do a progressive insight that you're trying to go up a ladder to get somewhere and that that plays into huge tension that blocks anything so i'm in a way i'm speaking to what you just named the tension around efforting and what has come clear to me is it, the word trust has a lot in it for me because the more awareness is clearly the truth of being more than any story I could tell myself, the more that trust allows a relaxing back over and over again. It just happens naturally. And there's more recognition when I say selfing of just that there's some tension because there's some the glue of identifying. And it's not like there's a sense of, oh, this is bad. It's more that just in the recognizing of that tension, there's a natural re-inhabiting you know, that, that you know, space of awareness. But what I have found in teaching, at least the people I have worked with benefit from a training and paying attention to the foreground, as you described, it's fine to have a platform of a witness and then hopefully have the skillfulness to loosen the grip, loosen the grip and see beyond what we are. But that that training has been invaluable for people. So I respect it and I offer it all the time. And the other piece is that it doesn't seem to work without an intentional cultivation of compassion. And that while compassion flows naturally when there's a a relaxed resting in non-dual presence, it flows naturally. It also can be, the the Tibetans describe it as kind of manufactured or deliberately invoked as a way of a kind of antidote to the tensing in our system allows us to relax and then re-perceive, oh, there's no separation, this is all one. So a lot of what I teach is a blending of mindfulness and self-compassion, and as things quiet down, then a, a gentle turning towards and becoming aware of awareness. Would you be up for doing like a, a five-minute guided meditation now? 
Sure. I'm always yeah. up for meditation. Cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you could just, I guess the audience in particular I, I have in mind here are people who, you know, have experience with, with mindfulness. They, they know what it's like to do dualistic vipassana, and yet they feel frustrated by, you know, much of what we've said already in this conversation, this, this sense that there's something more than just paying careful attention to the breath and sounds and anything else that appears. And they've sort of been promised this insight into selflessness, but they they haven't had it, or they, they're not sure they've had it, and they, they feel frustrated, and their starting point is the starting point of virtually anyone who, who begins to meditate and can, and it can stay this way for the longest time, which is they feel like they're this source of attention in their head, and they're, now they're aiming attention at the breath or at sounds, and so attention is this kind of spotlight that has a source, you know, and that source feels like me. It feels like them. It feel, it's me in here behind my face thinking my thoughts. And now I'm paying attention to the breath. But really the game here is just thoughts come up and distract me. And if I'm lucky, I can notice a thought very early as yet another object of consciousness. And then I come back to the breath. But this sense of being the meditator doesn't really get fully undercut and that feels like a place to be stuck that's the person i i want to talk to now yeah i'm with you there's still a sense of a ghost self there's somebody behind the curtains controlling things yeah yeah so yeah so let's do five minutes together and i invite you who are listening to take a moment to come into stillness and you might close your eyes and take consciously a few full breaths so that as you breathe in, you fill the chest and the lungs. And with the out breath, sense of letting go, relaxing outward. And again, breathing in fully, letting go with the out breath. And once again, filling the chest and lungs. And exhaling, letting go. And as the breath resumes in its natural rhythm, you might scan through the body for a few moments and just see what wants to let go. Softening and relaxing obvious tension. Take a moment to feel the shoulders from the inside out, softening, loosening. Let the hands be soft. And as you soften the hands, feel this hands from the inside out. And let the chest be open. Let this next breath be received in a softening belly. This breath. And now this one. And again. And feeling the breath and feeling the body breathing 
if you widen the lens, you can feel this whole body as a field of sensation. Including the play of sound. So you're listening to and feeling the whole moment. Aware of the changing sounds, sensations, feelings. Just letting everything be as it is. Noticing and allowing the changing flow. right here, the sensations, feelings, sensing this changing stream in the foreground, and sensing in the background, awareness, consciousness. Just relaxing back, resting in that wakefulness. presence like? What is that awareness like right now? Can you sense the quality of openness? That everything is happening in this openness. And can you sense that this open field is wakeful? There's a knowing quality. And that this open wakefulness is naturally tender, responsive. this moment sense who's listening 
And just gently turn the attention back and sense what's here, what's awake and aware. And then relax, no need to search, just relax and be whatever you notice. It's natural for the attention to keep refocusing on sounds or sensations or thoughts. But you can also periodically, with interest, just wonder, what is aware? What is thinking? Just turn the attention back to awareness, glancing back and then resting in whatever you notice becoming familiar with the open, wakeful presence that's your true home. And as you're ready to take a few full breaths again, open your eyes and to continue to sense the awareness that's here as images sounds, feelings, continue to move through. Nice. So, um, maybe we can just talk about that a little bit, because um, I'm always struck by the, the power of concepts to alter our experience here. And, and I mean, concepts are can be kind of denigrated in the teaching about meditation because it, you know the goal is to see beyond concepts to get past concepts and i'm convinced we successfully do that but there is this strange feature of concepts where analogies and metaphors and framings can really either block awareness of certain things or or unlock it so that in this this openness you're pointing people to i think there's a there can be a default sense that what's happening is that we're aware of the openness. We're aware of the expansiveness, the space-like quality of consciousness, or it's kind of brightness, it's luminous knowing quality. And yet, in reality, we're aware as the openness and as the knowingness, right? So it's not like you're outside the openness looking in. The, there is only the openness and its appearances or, or its permutations. So it's not, I guess the one analogy is you can get the sense that you're, you're standing on a riverbank, you know, looking at the, the stream of consciousness go by, but really you're, you're in the position of the, the river itself. There is no riverbank. You're not on, the, not on the edge of anything. I don't know if that distinction yeah, is useful any, for it. Yeah, because any pointing out runs the risk of still being the witness to what's pointed out. The value of pointing out is that if it's a good description, because our very nature is openness, wakefulness, tenderness, that description will resonate in a way that we relax back into the being of what has been pointed to. I mean, that's the usefulness of a pointing out, but you're 
also naming where it can have a, a very slight veil of separation by imagining an openness or imagining a wakefulness or a tenderness. And it's and that to me is the reason, you know, in guiding meditations that it's really a light touch on how much you point out versus inviting people to just be, mm. <laughs> just to be what is. And um, I figured in five minutes, I'd, I'd, in, I'd include some different ways of pointing out, but that really to get familiar with what we are requires even resting in it isn't the right word because it is what we are. And I love the way one teacher described it, that it's awareness is meditating or reality is meditating. There's not a self meditating. So we're just coming home to what we are. Yeah. So I'm with you on the usefulness and the shadow side of concepts. How do you think about the concept of depth in meditation? Because it, there's certainly a, even if it's not talked about explicitly, there, there's, there can be this implicit assumption that the goal is really to get deeper into the mind or awareness itself, that there's a, that there's some linear relationship between effort and continuity and, and this kind of traversing a, an inner landscape where you're getting closer to something. And, and that can be encouraged by the sense that, you know, whatever the object of meditation is, can be noticed more or less clearly, right? So you're, you're directed to the breath, say, and there can be the sense that it's, the sensation's vague, it's not as clear as it might be, well then, okay, you, got, you have to get more concentrated on it and penetrate more deeply into it. And that begins to suggest that the truth is in some way deep within wherever you're aiming your attention. And yet, in my experience, this shift from dualistic to non-dualistic mindfulness happens right on the surface. It's much closer than that. And the analogy I gave Joseph once back in the day was that it's almost like I, in every moment of meditation instruction prior to meeting Tuka Oregon, I felt like I had been told, like you, you go to the, the edge of a still pond and the, the goal is to, is to recognize your face. But, you know, I was led to the edge of the pond and told to look deeply into the water. And look at all, look at, look at those fish, you know, look at that moss and look at that. There's so many things to notice. And did you, oh, did you see that down there? Every moment of this exercise, I'm staring directly through the image of my face, looking back at me, but the, my focus is it was on the wrong plane. I was reaching deeply into phenomena. And yet, if you, you just shift the plane of focus ever so slightly, you see the water surface and your face staring back at you. And again, this is only an analogy, but it captures the instantaneousness and the, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. surface aspect of the shift. This is not far away and deep within. This is the very right. first moment of looking wherein it can be seen. Yeah, so Sam, I'm hearing a bit of the same concern as earlier in the conversation that whether you call it progression or depth, there's somewhere to get and that trips off all of our, you know, 
trying to do trying to do something with a strain and missing what is closer than we can imagine and easier than we can imagine and more wondrous. Mm. So these are that's those are the Tibetan descriptions of how come we miss it. And I'm with you. And I think the reason I use the word skillful like a lot of Buddhists do is we tend to we have goals, we have just the intention, even the word meditation has to do with a training, which implies that you're trying to train and become better at something. So for me, it's really how do we hold that kind of intentionality and effort lightly and wisely? Because there's something, and I th think of it often in terms of aspiration. I have, a, I have aspirations or deep longings. And when there's a sense of separation, I have a longing to belong. And there's some wisdom in that longing. It's like awareness calling me home. So if I can hold it lightly, not as if I should be better or should be getting somewhere different, but just honoring that the longing is here and actually opening into the center of it, it carries me into the belonging. And I'm using that as an example of how it feels wise to pay attention to our urge to evolve without the tightness that says it's wrong how I am and I need to get somewhere else, that there is just some natural unfolding going on and it's our it's our wisdom, it's the aware it's awareness that's inviting us into a process. I'm not sure if that how clear I'm saying it, but um, I'm with you that it that the the effort of going deep misses it the effort of trying to be a different kind of person or trying to have a certain experience misses it. But some choice to attend, which is often, at least it's just maybe in reality, there's no choosing. I mean, I, I get that, but it feels like there is and cooperating with that, just the way I'm cooperating with my longing seems to be skillful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're going to be apparently choosing many things anyway, right? I mean, you have to figure out what you want to eat for dinner. You, you mm -hmm. have to figure out what to watch on Netflix. So the idea that the choice to practice or to give attention to your own mind in this way, you know, that there's nothing intrinsically corrupting about that. I mean, you're going to be, you'll be pulled into your, your interest and commitment to this as fully as you are. And that's, yeah, I mean, I, I share your sense that this is, there's no place from which one is, really choosing this but I, I just on the on the level of you know conventional reality where we make choices well then it seems like uh, this is a choice worth making how do you think about the transition from the frame of formal practice to the rest of life how do, how do you teach people to live from the experience they have in meditation and to erase the seeming boundary between practice and and the rest of life and that's a great question because often the in a way i don't think of the path as going deeper or getting somewhere but just getting more familiar with reality hmm. that, that our nature is reality so familiarity is a really valuable word to me it just seems like that's what's happened we're just getting more familiar and often in daily life is where 
there's the most triggering to contract away from our natural openness or wakefulness or tenderness. So daily practice has to have compassion. And uh, that's, I emphasize compassion a lot because, you know, we are so rigged to go into what I call the trance of unworthiness. We're, we're in trances all the time unless we're being the awareness, but the trance of unworthiness is such a, a huge one, at least in Western culture, of feeling a sense of failure or deficiency that to relax and to begin to undo that, it, it takes a lot of intentional cultivation of self-compassion. So when I, I teach a, a lot the RAIN meditation, which is a weave of mindfulness and compassion. And you're probably familiar with it, yeah? Actually, I'm not, or I don't know it by that name. I mean, I know so I know of compassion is... practice in the kind of the standard jhana style, you know, metta turned towards suffering version. But, uh, you know, if, if you are game, I, I'd love you to do a few minutes of, of this as well. Do you, do you want to just jump into another? Sure. Session? Maybe I'll context it. And sure. then, uh, yeah, because the rain meditation is, I've had more people tell me, Rain saved my life, you know, that, that in terms of daily life, helping to bring them back to who they knew they were. And I, my most recent book, Radical Compassion, focuses on the RAIN meditation. And RAIN is an acronym that stands for Recognize, Allow, Investigate, and Nurture. And the key of RAIN is what I call after the RAIN, which is after there's been those more deliberate practices, there's a, a recognition of the quality of the presence that comes up. So there's a kind of a turning towards and being that. And the understanding is that when we bring mindfulness to what's here and, then, and we hold what's here with compassion, it loosens the the selfing, all this, this, the, the identification in a way that allows us to recognize the awareness that's here. And so rain is applied to times when we feel like we're stuck, when there's an emotional tangle. So with that as, and I'll just, I'll share one story and mm -hmm. then, then the practice that I had been teaching rain for years and it was initially, the, the acronym was first taught by Michelle O'Donnell and she had the N of RAIN as non-identification. And non-identification is the fruit of it, but it's not a doing. You can't not identify. So, And what was missing for me was compassion. Because when people are really emotionally stuck, there's a lot of pain and there need, we need the softening and the dissolving of compassion. So I shifted nurture into it. I did it for a lot of years. People kept giving me the feedback of how much it changed their lives. But what motivated me to write about it was uh, my mother, when she was in her late 70s, came to move down here to live with my, with my husband and I, Jonathan and I. And, and then the first eight months, I was super, super busy at all these commitments, writing commitments, etc. And so I was chronically feeling guilty and anxious about getting things done and one day i remember she walked into my office she had a 
New Yorker article or something she wanted to show me. And I was fixated on my computer, actually putting together a talk on Meta. Mm -hmm. And I barely know, I barely looked up. And so she just, you know, graciously dropped it off and started and moved away. And I watched her retreating figure and I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know how long I'll have her around. And so I, I did rain then. And I, you know, I sat down and I recognized, you know, what was going on inside me and allowed it to be there. Just when allow, I usually say this belongs. It's just part of the waves of the ocean right now. And investigate and I found underneath, you know, the anxiety, that very old fear of failure place. And, and investigation in rain is very somatic. It's not conceptual. I could just feel the squeeze. And I brought kindness to it and felt a, a more a more spacious feeling and just noticed the, again, that kind of wakeful openness, kind of honing in what is and, and just tenderness for the whole process. So after that, Sam, you know, I just, you know, regularly when I found myself getting tight and, you know, didn't want to take, you know, kind of resented the extra time I needed to spend going, you know, taking my mother somewhere or doing something, I would do some rain and it really shifted. I became much more just living the moments with her, you know, having our big salads together at night and taking walks by the river. And and when she died, which is really only three years later, I just remember so much, you know, and I adored her, the, the grief, but also just not feeling regret. Like I had really, we had lived our time together. And so when people tell me rain saved, my life, I think of it like rain saved my life moments with my mother. And that motivated me to write about, you know, just the different ways we can bring rain, whether it's to rain on blame, rain when we're, you know, in conflict with others, rain when we're, you know, ashamed of ourselves, rain when we're angry or fearful. So with that larger contexting that I had intended. That's great. Um, no, that's, it's, such a pain point for everyone. I mean, and that moment you describe is so familiar to me that it's um, it's fantastic to have that context. Yeah, yeah. So we'll do a, a brief uh, rain practice, and as a way of beginning, again, I invite you to become still. Eyes are closed. And take a moment again to scan through your body and see if there's anything that might want to let go a little. Relaxing the shoulders. Softening the hands. Letting the chest be open. And softening the belly. Letting the breath come deep into the torso. Feeling this body breathing. And taking a few moments to scan your life and sense if there's anywhere that's asking for attention, where you're feeling triggered or reactive. 
could be something where you're in a conflict with another person and you're feeling angry, holding blame, feeling defensive. Might be feeling anxious about something that's coming up. Maybe something around health, your own health, someone else's. Might be a place where you're feeling hurt, hurt by others. Maybe an addictive pattern that's playing out and you're down on yourself. So just to choose something where you, perhaps in the last days or week, felt really reactive, but not something that's traumatic. And when you choose the situation, bring your mind to it so you can remember the most recent incident. Let yourself sense the room that you're in. If there's someone else involved, see their face, expression on their face, remembering the words that they spoke. And as if you're watching a, a movie, go to the frame that's most triggering. And freeze the frame and sense what's most disturbing, what most upsets you, what you're most afraid of. The rain begins with R, which is recognize, and just to recognize whatever emotions predominant. And it helps to mentally whisper it. Maybe a few, but just choose whatever's most calling your attention. Maybe anger, fear, anxiety, hurt. Once you've named what's going on, the A of RAIN is just to allow it. And that means let it be there. Allowing is kind of an intentional letting be. You might even whisper the words, this belongs. And just think of it like these are the waves that are happening right now. Just, you don't have to like it. Just not to fix or get rid of it. Just let it be. Allowing will allow you to begin to investigate. And investigation is primarily somatic, which means just to feel your throat, your chest, your belly, and sense where you're feeling what's going on the most. And you might ask yourself, well, what am I believing when this is happening? Am I believing that this other person doesn't really care about me? Or am I believing that I'm failing in some way? There may be some strong belief. It may be a deep one that I'm unlovable. If you sense a belief, come back to the body. And again, when you're really believing this, what's going on inside you? What do you feel? 
to help you get in touch with what's there in your body. You might have your face in the expression that matches the feeling. Maybe your jaws clenched, your brows are knitted. Your posture might be slumped a bit or your hands and fists, whatever has to do with the feelings in your body and that'll help you to access them more. And sense the worst part of this again, what you're most upset about. And feel in your body the place that feels most vulnerable. And you might put your hand on your heart or your hand on wherever you're feeling that vulnerability. In a way, that's the beginning of nurturing the end of rain. But it also helps you to really contact what's here. And as you feel that vulnerability, you might ask yourself, well, what does this part of me really need? How does it want me to be with it? You know, maybe it needs a, a reminder that it's lovable, that it's okay. Maybe it needs to feel a sense of belonging to something larger, feel held. Maybe it needs to feel forgiven or accepted. What does this place need? And as you sense into, just in this moment, what it needs, what's the quality of heart that it needs, you can sense that you're calling on your most wise awake heart so you can offer that caring inwardly. And if you haven't already, you might put your hand on your heart and let the touch be tender and sense that you're communicating inwardly care to the place in you that's stuck, that's hurting, that's vulnerable. What message, what wisdom, what reminder might be helpful right now? If it's hard to offer yourself kindness, you might imagine some other person who you trust, who you sense is loving and kind and wise, and just sense their presence and their caring energy flowing through your hand into the vulnerable place. Could be a friend, a grandparent, a pet, could be a spiritual figure, could be some formless sense of presence. To see if you can let in love, let in care, and notice what happens as you do. widening your attention to sensing being right here and notice the quality of presence that has emerged just in these last few moments or minutes 
notice the shift to whatever degree from the angry self or hurting self or fearful self to some sense of presence, perhaps more spacious, perhaps more kind. Just noticing the presence and then relaxing, just being that presence. This is after the rain. And it's in these moments you can sense that this presence is more the truth of who you are than any story or emotion that's passing through. And as you're ready, you might take a few full breaths and open your eyes. Thank you. Nice. That's such a great conjunction of formal practice and the crucial moments in people's lives where it seems like practice is needed, but so often unavailable. Well, the key is pausing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, once we get on a roll, we just tumble into the future. We're just on a reactive roll. And so the first step is knowing, okay, there's a, because most people, when they're in reactivity, that that's when mindfulness, you know, is utterly unavailable. Like you can't even remember the way back. So there's some value to have kind of a, a tool, which is easy to remember. Uh, when our mind is scrambled, that just says, okay, let's recognize, allow, investigate, nurture, and then notice the presence, open to it, be it. So yeah, people do it on the spot when they can. I think it's a light rain, you know. Mm -hmm. And then people also do it on the sidelines when they're working an issue, sometimes building it into their meditation practice. And now there are more and more people, Sam, that are doing this as rain partners, which I really love because all, when we do, when Jack and I do teacher trainings, we have all the teachers, to, you know, to have a rain partner for the year or whatever, because it actually makes it less personal. That when I share with you, here's what I'm working on. You share with me, here's the stuck place. It, it's it's just more we get it that okay, this is our human conditioning, and it also provides a container so we can be a little more accountable to the practice and. And a, a kind of kind, a shared kindness, a space of kindness that itself softens and brightens things. So, Rain Partners is really a lovely way of having kind of relational practice together. Mm. Mm, nice. So, I'm interested in this moment where so many people find it difficult to direct love or compassion toward themselves. In your experience as a teacher or as a practitioner what what is usually going on there why is that uh, a sticking point for so many people and what, what tricks have you found to get people to pass that impasse and unlock what should be you know at least viewed from from the side of you know traditional dharma teachings a very easy intention to access i mean you know from big picture from the point of view of certainly the buddhist teachings 
know, everyone is seeking happiness. Everyone wants to be happy. And, and so wanting happiness for another human being is, in the main, what we mean by loving kindness. So it seems like you should be able to turn that light on yourself in a very straightforward way. But there's vast testimony at this point that many people find it very difficult. Yeah, it's true. Bringing metta, bringing loving kindness, our compassion to ourselves is a huge sticking point for people. And it ta- and, and in order to have real emotional healing is what we need to do. So that's why I emphasize it so much. We are deeply conditioned to feel bad about ourselves. We quickly go from that kind of survival brains registering of something's wrong or going to go wrong to I'm wrong, I'm going wrong. And that's amplified in, at least in Western society, where we we don't have much natural community or places to belong. And so we have to meet all sorts of criteria and hoops. So who we are becomes identified with how well we're jumping through certain hoops, whether it's how you know beautiful or attractive we are, how intelligent we are, money or whatever it is, personality, but we have hoops. It's there's not an unconditional okayness. And especially in our societies are so we have we have a racial caste system. We're we are societies with caste systems so that it's double amplified for those who are not in the dominant population that the message is coming through all of our institutions that you are less than. So it's no surprise that people feel unworthy, inferior, you know, et cetera. The question is, how do we wake up from that? And, you know, part of it is to be in communities dedicated to really being conscious and relating with each other, being speaking out our vulnerabilities, holding each other in that and so on. In terms of a intrapsychic or meditation practice and that I've I've spent a lot of time teaching pathways to compassion and one of my own experiences really shaped that where I was I remember going to IMS after the holidays and it had been really it'd been really demanding work-wise and again I felt like out of sorts and like I hadn't really come through for family and so when I got to retreat all of that broke into consciousness just feeling like I had you know here I go around the world talking about loving each other and you know in my own family I had just you know been tight and tense and judgmental and so on and I tried most of my normal tricks and they didn't work you know I tried to put my hand on my heart and offer myself kind messages and so on and it was like something in me dug in its heels and said, no, this is bad, this is not okay. And it just kind of unraveled to a very old kind of despairing place that was actually like calling into the world, please love me, just wanting something large. It's like, I can't do better than I'm doing and please love me, let me belong to something loving. And there was something in the prayerfulness, the sincerity, the angst, the depth that made me receptive in a way that I imagined and sensed some light-filled presence, um, in some way blessing me, kissing me on the brow, you know, loving me. And 
just as I relax and let it in, I just it was just a sense of, I think it's Srinur Sargadatta or Punja, one of them says, love is always loving you. It was just a sense that love was just loving me. And so I used that visualization a lot as a bridge. You know, I would, it became clear that what was loving me was my own awake awareness, was loving what set what I was identified with as a self. You know, that was that was kind of melting that identity. But I found that as a really powerful bridge where I just imagined the presence around me as a, a sentient, awake presence that was uh, cherishing me and letting that in. And it would very quickly be a disillusion of identification might become it. So I, I, I did those that pathway so many times that mm. the neural pathway to it became strong. So now it just can be in an instant that there's a sense of the love that I really am is holding tenderly the place in me that's hurting. But what the reason I'm spending time on this story, Sam, is that for many people, finding a bridge that works, some other being, whether it's a friend or their dog, our child, our spiritual figure, it what happens is that when they let that love in, it relaxes the it kind of dissolves that sense of separateness. And so they end up experiencing what's always and already here. And it's to me that's a skillful bridging. Hmm. And so I teach that kind of bridging a lot with compassion practices. If you can't hold yourself in kindness, imagine being held in kindness and reconnect that way hmm. yeah you, you can also run the bridge in the other direction if you just imagine uh, being in the presence of a best friend who's telling himself or herself the same story you've been telling yourself what intentions would you form for that person would you support this story of shame and self-criticism in them the way you're, you're you appear to be doing it in yourself or would you find a very different gear and have very different advice to give them uh, and it's you know in my experience I you know I, I'm not I'm not in the same role you are with so many encounters with students but when I've done this or when I've done this with my kids or other people it's it does unlock the same kind of resources I mean that you just kind of triangulate on yourself and you realize oh I would never speak this way mm -hmm. to a close friend that's exactly right in fact the I've kind of my criticism of the way metta or loving kindness or compassion is taught is that it's way it's way too narrow there are so many different pathways that arouse the tenderness and we just need to be creative some of them are visual some of them are kinesthetic some of them are audio things that we say to ourselves but when i work with people i'm just helping them to find what pathway we all have tendrils that connect us to what's always here. And it's finding those tendrils and then activating them and practicing them until they become a really well-greased pathway. I'm, I know I'm mixing a lot of metaphors mm -hmm. here, but that, that it really works. And I see it work with compassion for others too. There's a, I love this little metaphor of, you know, imagine there's a dog in the woods and you go over to pet it and it, jumps at you, it lurches at you with its fangs bared, you know, you know, very aggressively, and you go from being friendly to bad dog, angry, and then you see its leg is in a trap. 
And then you shift again, you go, oh, you poor thing. And you might not get close to it, but you, your heart's not, you know, angry at, mm. at that dog. And if we can begin to see when we are acting in ways that we judge so harshly, that's in some way our leg is in a trap, that we wouldn't be behaving that way unless in some way we were hurting. And it's the same with others. And there's this way to train them of really looking to see the vulnerability because that will arouse the tenderness. Compassion comes up when we're bringing our presence to where there's vulnerability. So that's, again, there's these different ways of training. And the other way is uh, looking for the goodness to, to just get in the habit when we're with each other of knowing that there's a certain amount of an ego mask or whatever we want to call it, just the habits of presenting or defending and just seeing this, sensing the sentience, the, the deep good intention and so on. And so I, I think these kind of trainings are what our world needs right now. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're so locked into a dividedness. Yeah. You know, what do you think is necessary beyond meditation practice for a person to integrate wisdom and compassion into their life? Well, part of meditation is relational meditation. So I think that's that's often not recognized that. You know, when, especially when a lot of these practices got transplanted over to the West, we're, we have such an ideology of individuality that they got planted in that. And so everybody went off to IMS or to monasteries. And it was only over the last, you know, maybe 10 years that the value of Sangha or community has become much more obvious in, in, the, in Asia all these practices are embedded in community and in ethical behaviors. So, so we've kind of had to come around to that, but I don't think that we, I, everything happens in relationship, whether we're in relatedness with ourselves or each other and the wounding and the awakening of heart. And so that, that's the trainings of how to um, wake up with each other so that so that we are acting on behalf of all of us. I mean, the translation of what you and I are talking about, the non-dual, just being that awareness, is that awareness relates when it's when awareness is awake, open, in its natural expression, it relates to what's arising. Everything arises as part of it, and it relates with tenderness. Well, in order for us to do that, we really need to practice when we have forgotten with each other. And that is what will have people take care of each other and also not have other species as lower. I mean, we are so hierarchical. Everything we do is hierarchical. Our brain is so geared that way so that we, you know, destroy the earth because the earth is an object out there and we're above it. We are cruel to other species, you know, we eat them, we destroy them. So it's, again, all these trainings, I feel like have to come alive in the relational field. Mm. Yeah, it really speaks to the power of culture. It's a kind of operating system that affects everything and it affects even our independent psychology in ways that are not 
always obvious, right? I was reminded when you were talking about the difficulty of feeling love for oneself of this story that Sharon Salzberg has been telling for uh, several decades at this point. It's probably about 30 years ago where she was in dialogue with the Dalai Lama at one of the Mind and Life conferences, and she was she referenced the concept of self-hatred. And this is a concept that really just couldn't get through translation mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. him. And I'm sure, no doubt you've heard this story. But so it's going back and forth through the translator. I don't know who it was at the time, Tupton Jimpa or Alan Wallace or somebody. And the Dalai Lama was asking questions about this concept. You know, are these people dangerous, these people who feel self-hatred? Or, you know, who are these people? And, uh, you know, Sharon joke, you know, it's all of us, you know, pointing to all the teachers and scientists who are at the meeting. But I don't know how deep this difference goes, but it seemed like the very concept of self-hatred was something that really didn't have a correlate in the Dalai Lama's psychology or culture. And that's that's fairly astounding, but there are many things like that where we have been created by culture and cultural norms and all the hoops you've mentioned that we struggle to jump through and all of this has become a kind of background operating system that we can't really inspect very well and we can see its consequences once we become sensitive to them and we can make deliberate changes and broaden our experience and aspirations and associations and and try to shift things uh, in addition to simply being mindful of everything that's arising as it arises but it's incredibly powerful, and it is really the thing that determines the video game you're playing that is your life, or the, you know, mm-hmm. the movie mm-hmm. that you're watching that is your life. There's a lot of legacy code here that has been written not by you, but by everyone who preceded you in the culture in which you have lived. That, that's right. This one person said we're not thinking our own thoughts, we're thinking society's thoughts, and mm-hmm. we are incredibly you know, what's been internalized, we're just beginning to wake up to see. And that's why, I mean, I've, in these last few years, my biggest wake up domain has been around racism because you can't be part of this society and not be racist and not have some inferior, superior, some entitlement, some privilege if you're dominant. And to begin to wake up to that, is is really profound and i don't see how we can be on a path of awakening a spiritual path without paying attention to that particular domain it's so big not paying attention to it means those operating systems are still contracting on some subtle level are you know keeping us in a smaller identity of us and them so it feels in for Westerners that very intentionally building in ways of paying attention that undoes separation and nourishes community are really important. A a few weeks ago, I I was leading something with our teachers and I told them how when I first started giving talks and I was, you know, it was a self very anxious about its self's performance. (laughs) What I would do is Two things, actually. I would start with just a prayer, may this serve our awakening. And that kind of quieted down. It was so sincere that it quieted down the selfing. But the other was, I would just reflect, 
we are friends. And, you know, just tossing that in there intentionally, because it, it's a, in the deepest level, it's true, actually would just relax that, that performer, performing self and there'd just be more that could happen. And I still do that, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I thought of art, I thought before approaching this, you know, I was, I had, I've known of you for so long and I've had, you know, interest and appreciation from a distance. And so I was curious to see how it would go. And then I thought, wait a minute, the ways that will most incline this to um, something valuable and freeing is just reflect we are friends. And so I did it with you and it was it was sweet because then my then I was even more curious and open than in any way you know identified. So I think we, I think for many of us, at least I'll say instead of all of us, we need to intentionally dismantle the habits of separating. Mm. It's an interesting topic to, to bring up here. I, I don't know that we should go deeply into it. I feel like it'll be in the end seem like a distraction, but I don't know how familiar you are with my podcast life and my criticism of woke identity politics, but you know, I, I feel like the there, there's been a kind of indoctrination of much of culture and, and much of Dharma culture with you know, what we might call uh, you know, critical race theory, which is, um, is actually fairly regressive, you know, in the end, from my point of view. I mean, I, I, you know, I would just plant two flags here where you, where you can see them to give a sense of just how I think about this. Uh, I mean, one is I think the goal here is really quite obvious. We, we want to get beyond caring about superficial differences between people like skin color. I mean, skin color, in the end, needs to become like hair color in having zero political or moral significance, right? And so the, the question for me is just how to get there. And many people seem to be suggesting that, I mean, there's, there's some people are actually saying that's a false goal, we should never get there. Race is an indelible hmm. separator between people and it should remain that way and we have to deal with it. And that is, you know, if you're a white person who thinks that, well, you're basically a, a neo-Nazi or a member of the KKK, but there are many people of color who appear to think that now, and they really are informing our conversation about race. People like Ibram X. Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates, I mean, they really are talking about race as though it's, it is truly a, a, an indelible divider between us. So I, I'm much more taken with the goal of someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who imagined that we could get to a place where we would really just care about the content of a person's character and not the color of their skin. So there's that. And also it's just that the fact that, you know, er, you know, everything we fo have focused on in this conversation and the whole point of meditation and, and living an examined life is to recognize that you don't even have to identify with the face you see in the mirror each morning, right? Much less the group of people out in the world who share your superficial characteristics of skin color or ethnicity and you know, a cultural background, whatever it is. So if the goal is really to get over ourselves and to get past these differences, well, it's never too soon to do that. A future where we have surmounted the problem of racism is not one in which more and more of us are passionate anti-racists or super concerned about the prospect of our own 
racism. It's no, it's a, it's a world in which we simply have forgotten about race. I mean, in the same way as we, we, we never acquired a, a fixation on hair color as being politically or morally important. And so many people are, are and now, now Tara, I realize that, you know, by way of not having this conversation, I'm just plunging us into it. But I'll just give you this download. Obviously, we can edit this if we decide we don't want any of this in here. But what's, ha- what's happening now, and it's been happening for some years, as, as, you, as you know, in Dharma circles, I remember kind of arguing with Joseph about this a little bit, even before I realized this was a, a major cultural phenomenon and it was going to be happening on college campuses and in our politics to a huge degree in recent years. Uh, so going back about 10 years, I was, or at least 10 years, I was hearing the kind of percolations of, the, of this in Buddhist circles. But one other data point here, which, which reveals the pathology of this, which is that, so Coleman Hughes is a brilliant, a young black intellectual. He, he just, he actually just graduated college, but even before he, he got his degree from, in philosophy from Columbia, he was making very public contributions to our discussion about race in the last few years. And he's also a Vipassana yogi, and he's sat at IMS. And he told me this story of sitting his first retreat at IMS as a black man who, you know, as is, will be familiar to you, there are not many people of color on most retreats. It's probably gotten more common in recent years, but there was certainly a time where, you know, you could be the, the single black person on a retreat with, a, you know, a hundred a hundred white people practicing meditation in silence. And so he, he checks in at I, IMS, and he's he's reading the, the handbook of, um, you know, the orientation to the place, and literally on the first page of the handbook, I don't know if this is still the case, he reads about the problem of white privilege, and, you know, he, basically there's a page of admonishment to all the white people on this retreat that they, they've got the, all this kind of the original sin of white privilege to overcome, and and how important it is to be sensitive to the experience of people of color. And his testimony as a person of color put into that circumstances, this was the antithesis of what he wanted or needed there, right? I mean, like the last thing in the world he would want is 99 white people lurking around him in silence, orienting to him as the lone black person on this retreat who must be feeling keenly the difference born of race. No, he wanted to surmount this whole problem. And for him, you know, race is, is something that he has been living beyond to an impressive degree for much of his life, very much against the grain of the identity politics that's being hammered into everyone left of center at all hours of the day and night now. So anyway, that's that's how I come to this issue of race, you know, to, to recklessly take our conversation in a very different direction here which is, I think this is a concept that we have to get past, and the people who are most agitated at this moment about the the remaining problem of racism in our society don't seem to understand that, frankly. Now, again, and, and I just, and this is my last word on the topic here, at least for this volley, none of what I'm, what I've just said is to discount the problem of racism still exists. I mean, there are still racists in our society who consciously have bad intentions and politics that I find odious. And there are still systems that are de facto racist or having have racist outcomes that we should want to dismantle. I'm not doubting any of that, but just so much of our conversation with ourselves about race now seems 
obviously dysfunctional to me. And so anyway, I, the reason why I, <laughs> reason why I hit you with this is because my audience, when, when you when you launched into what you said about race, uh-huh, uh-huh. half of my audience was just waiting with bated breath to figure out wh- what I was going to say or whether I was going to say anything, <laughs> given how much well, I've said on this topic. I knew you've said some, and I knew we had different perspectives. So I wasn't baiting you, but I wasn't nor did I think you would just necessarily sit with it. (laughs) (laughs) Although um, in the miracle of editing, I can just seem to sit with it if we we want that. We can lob off. I I get that. And it would be a a valuable, interesting process to to move further. I'll I'll just say a little because it is big. And for Coleman being one of 99, that's one experience. I have been very, very involved with doing every strategy we can to diversify our retreats. And now we have, you know, a little less than half people of color. And the reason why is because I've gotten my co-teacher. So our our team is always half and half. And because if you see somebody up front who's an authority that's like you, then, you know, you feel more welcome. We have affinity sitting groups so that people have can go and sit with just people of color if they want to each day and a lot more. And in contrast to your experience with Coleman, I get countless people telling me that they have so much gratitude that we have made it safe enough for them to come and feel a sense of belonging. And that they that people would tell me that in the past they felt physically unsafe with just having, you know, like a white team of teachers or without having the chance to just be with people of color. And so what I would say is that there's a huge amount of racialized trauma in the bodies of black and white people. And that as much as I think race is just a concept that's been created, it's one of those real but not true things, as Sokni would put it. Mm -hmm. It's not truth in the sense of, you know, there's no difference, but it's real in the sense of the way it now has an impact. And to undo that impact, it takes, I think that the shadow side of the non-dual is some idea that it it's right here and we can just, we don't have to, we just don't believe it. And we just, you know, because as you were saying earlier about the implants from our society, it's a deep part of our operating system. And I do think it takes intentional looking and dedication and caring. Um, I was in a white awareness group for a year and then I I did a three year process with a a racially mixed group, that wonderful group. We We were gay, we were straight, we were trans, we were black, brown, white, et cetera. I was in the minority. Um, with the intention of what's life like if you're in the dominant or non-dominant population, what's it like? And Sam, the stories and the sense of daily, the kind of not being seen, the violations, the, the challenge, the hurdles for people, especially the people of color, the stories like I was, I was a mom of a teen just and another African-American woman was and for her, 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 her teen going out at night panicked her because, you know, he could get shot, he said, bad things could happen. Just getting to know what daily life was like, very, very, well, my first reaction, to be honest, was this growing sense of people would share their stories. And I felt a sense of, 
not belonging because like I I'd been living in my white bubble it's been which has been you know quite comfortable and so on so I went through a number of months where I was feeling a sense of guilt like I was the bad guy all the things that aren't useful to feel and then I did some rain on my own and it broke open to this place of first I felt the bad personhood and then as I opened my opened and came into a larger awareness I could see it was just a group identity you know it's just this is just the conditioning of the white mind you know to be entitled or privileged or whatever it's not who I am and that let me just grieve and the grieving felt so necessary to be able to just grieve the degree of centuries of suffering. It, it felt really important that my heart could break like that. And after that, I haven't felt white guilt. I don't feel identified. I feel like I'm, I'm more and more aware of the conditioning of a white person as a group identity, but I don't feel a sense of personally holding the guilt, you know, and so that has freed me to get more engaged and active. But in contrast to you, I do think it needs to be a place, it's like where the wound is, we pay attention. And this is a huge wound. It's real. It's not true in the sense of the concepts, but we need to pay attention. And um, I have watched the change in our retreats that have allowed people of color to come and to feel more of a sense of belonging. And so it gives me kind of a a confidence of what's possible, and we've got a long way to go. Mm. Well, I think there's probably a, a very interesting conversation to be had on this topic. I imagine I could add one person to your team. Joseph actually would be a very good person to add to your side of this, because he, he he's certainly shares this view. And if I brought Coleman into the conversation, <laughs> we, could, we could perform a, a mutual exorcism on, on one another and, and see where we, we landed. <laughs> uh, it, could, it could be fun. Have you read the book Cast? No, I, you know, I haven't yet, but it's, it's sort of on my list. I've heard people love it. The analogy to the caste system in India is fascinating because that's something that very few Westerners ever think about, and it does illuminate many things. It kind of shakes loose various concepts in this conversation, so I, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to read it and see what's done with it there. Yeah, I'd love you to, and if you wouldn't mind just letting me know just a brief line yeah. or two, because cool. it's, it's been to me one of the most formative, well-done books in a while. That and uh, a podcast called Seeing White with John Bewen, who's pretty, he does an amazing job with that too. Cool. All right. So we'll table that for uh, some future, <laughs> future pleasures. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so just before I let you go, I want to ask kind of a, an adjacent question here, which does relate to sort of the breakdown of ethics and the way in which the experience of non-duality may not be enough to get us out of the ditch here. And it's just, it's just this all too common, unfortunately, phenomenon of uh, various gurus, you know, most of whom are not, you know, or were not frauds in any straightforward sense. I mean, these, these are real teachers who have real experience, who produce real awakenings in other people who obviously have their own personal problems still to be worked out because they wind up behaving terribly in the role of teacher. I mean, they, they you know, have, they have mm -hmm. sex with their students, they have sex with their married students, they're abusive, 
you know, verbally and physically. I mean, it's just, and, and much of this, again, I think is born of a collision of culture because so, many of these Eastern teachers have come from cultures where they're a set of essentially theocratic, uh, hierarchical expectations, mm -hmm, which give them, mm -hmm. you know, license in their own minds to act like tyrants. And then there's all the projection on the other side from their devotees that allows them to behave like magical tyrants. But I'm just wondering what your experience has been here and, and just whether you think the, the guru-disciple relationship is just, is in principle broken at this point. Is it anachronistic? Is there a Dharma 2.0 version of, of teacher-student relationships that we should be enshrining now as a new norm? How do, how do you think about this whole area? Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I do think that the hierarchies that a lot of spiritual communities are built around are a setup. I and mean, we know that there's research on how what happens to power when somebody has power, that it distorts and corrupts, you know, in different ways the brain. And in patriarchal systems, it just, it's just a setup for anybody that's in power to violate their position. I think that in, in Buddhism, the, the, the teacher is described as a spiritual friend and it doesn't always come off that way. It's usually hierarchical. But to me, the antidote to the corruption of power is a more democratic spiritual community that has that's also feminized, you know, has, has the, the feminine archetype strong in it. So that combo of democracy and the feminine archetype and by democracy I think the Vipassa community has been pretty good it's of course every every community has people that violate standards but the teachers keep an eye on each other there's ethic committees there's all sorts of processes when there's some sort of a violation to bring bring it to to others to help sort it out so there's oversight you know because mm. we humans are humans and I think that's that's kind of the response that we had that there'd be more sangha, more community, more democracy, and more of the feminine archetype. Yeah, but one reason why the Vipassana community has escaped this to the degree it has is that the emphasis is really on the practice. It's never really on the teacher. The guru archetype is not really instantiated there. It's it's much more. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely a strength when you're talking about closing the door to, the, to these liabilities. I guess it's a, in some ways, it's a weakness in that, insofar as there's anything useful in guru devotion or just the sense that you can you can radically accomplish the project of freeing the mind in this life, it's not advertised in quite the same way in the Vipassana community. It's not to say that people aren't doing it to the same degree, but it's just for good or for ill, you have in these other contexts the sense that it's really possible to complete this project to an impressive degree. Well, I think it depends on the teacher and also the bodhisattva ideals that it's not so much focused on an individual's liberation as we, we're awakening for the sake of everybody's awakening, that it's all happening. Mm. I can't really awaken fully if I'm not in some way paying attention to and reaching out to you. But I want to say that I think that guru-disciple can have integrity and can be incredibly powerful if it's done in a mature, wise way. It's just that, the you know, there's so much 
chance it won't be. Mm. And that's why I think in the West, and Thich Nhat Hanh said it well, that the Buddha is really become the Sangha, that it really is the relational field that we take refuge in and that there be teachers, but they don't have that kind of a hierarchical authority. Mm. Well, Tara, it's been so great to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time. And, and before we close out here, where can people find more of your work? Uh, mostly my website, tarabrock.com, and I do have a, a weekly podcast also. And uh, my most recent book, Radical Compassion, is where you'll find a lot of guidance in using rain. Well, thanks again, Tara. It's really been fantastic. Oh, Sam, it's been a delight. Thank you for inviting me.